when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. So after acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things, our Father in heaven, and then worshiping him, hallowed be your name. Jesus says the very first request that we are to make when we pray is this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, before we ask him to meet any of our personal needs, before we ask for forgiveness for our sins, before we ask him to protect and prosper us, all of which comes later in the prayer, but before all of that, he says, first recognize and acknowledge who it is you're praying to, and then worship him. And then make your very first request be that his will be perfectly expressed in us here on earth as his will is perfectly expressed in heaven. Which is not to say that his perfect will is expressed in heaven the same way that it is expressed here on earth. Because it isn't. It's actually a mistake that a lot of Christians make when interpreting this passage of Scripture, this idea that Jesus was saying that God's ultimate goal is for the kingdom of God on earth now to look exactly like the kingdom of God in heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, in heaven, uh, first of all, no one is getting married, right, according to Matthew twenty-two thirty. but here on earth it is his will, at least for some of us, to be married. Uh, in heaven, there's no evangelism or disciple making. But on earth, his will is for us to evangelize and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. Uh, there's no suffering in heaven. But it is his will that we share in Christ's sufferings here on earth. 1 Peter 4, 13 being just one of, of many examples. Right? There's no death in heaven. But on earth, it is appointed to man to die once. Hebrews 9, 27, okay, praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven is not a request for our lives on this earth to look exactly like our lives will someday look in heaven. That is a misinterpretation of this scripture. No, praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is to pray that we are able to live on earth as Christ lived on earth. Because he's the ultimate example of God's kingdom coming to earth from heaven. And what did that look like? Jesus came from heaven to earth and showed us his perfect love for us by making disciples and suffering for us and laying down his life for us and dying for us. So when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're praying, Father, help me to live for you and for others just as Jesus lived for you and for others. It's a drastically different prayer than may heaven come down to earth so that what's happening here can resemble as closely as possible what's happening there. 
That's why it's so important that we understand Jesus' instructions for prayer because we're not to pray for heaven on earth. No, we're to pray for Christ-likeness on earth. It's a very, very different prayer. Nothing that happened to Jesus on earth. Listen, nothing that happened to Jesus on earth, even though everything that happened to him on earth was God's perfect will and kingdom being expressed through Jesus, and yet none of what happened to Jesus on earth is happening to him in heaven. God's will for us on this earth is not the same as his will for us once we're in heaven. His will for us here is to live as Christ lived when he was here, which is how his kingdom and his will is expressed on earth. And then, and then once we're in heaven, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Philippians 3.21. It's a completely different situation altogether. So we need to understand what it is that Jesus was teaching us to pray for, that our lives on earth would look exactly like his life on earth. Okay, that's how your life was meant to be. And therefore, the kind of life you're supposed to be praying for, which is what our story is all about today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through 1 Samuel, where we have a very short, yet very powerful vignette within the larger story of a friendship between two men that becomes a profound example of the kingdom of heaven expressed in the lives of God's people as it should be here on earth. And so if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that David confronted the Philistine giant Goliath, even though no one else took him seriously, right? Not the Israelites or their enemies. And even though no one else had confidence in him, not even his own king, and even though no one else would go with him, not even his own family, David went anyway. Because even though it appeared that he was all alone at the time, David knew that he was actually never alone because God was with him. And as you're well aware, he defeats Goliath and leads the Israelites to this overwhelming victory. And as we talked about last week, sometimes in our lives, we have to face certain things, right? Uh, obstacles, circumstances, failed relationships, bad reports, and on and on, where it seems like you're utterly alone. But if you are in Christ, you're in fact never alone because he's always with you. And yet it's also true, listen, it's also true that as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are individually a part of a larger body, his body, his church, right? Which means although there may be certain moments or specific events in your life that you have to face where it's just you and Jesus, right? it's never his will for your life to stay that way without the love and support and participation of the other members of the body. That's why he created his church, because you were specifically created to function as a member of that entire body. That's how your life was meant to be. That's how his kingdom is expressed on this earth, through you. Which means even in those times when it seems like no one else is with you, God will always, at points along the way, present opportunities for you to be deeply connected to the other parts of the body that every single one of us needs in our lives. We're going to see that in our story today because, again, that's the way his kingdom is expressed on earth as it is in heaven. When you're living out the gospel, just as Jesus did, with other people just as Jesus did. 
And so up to this point in our story, it seems as if David is alone until God sends someone to him as not only a bulwark of support and friendship in David's life, but as an example of how God's kingdom is expressed through his people in our relationships with one another. And listen, uh, I'm just telling you, it doesn't get any bigger than this. At least not if your desire is to honestly live the life that God meant for you to live. So look, if that's you, then the message of these five short verses that we're reading today has to become a reality in your own life. Okay, so let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see if we can get a clear picture of what God's kingdom on earth is supposed to look like in our lives. First Samuel 18, we'll begin with the first two verses. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So the chapter opens up with as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul. Now that's a reference to the conversation that David had with Saul immediately after he killed Goliath at the end of the previous chapter. In fact, uh, it says that David was still holding Goliath's severed head in his hand when he was brought to Saul having this conversation. And obviously Jonathan, Saul's son, was there when this conversation was happening between his father and David. And something profound happens inside of Jonathan. David's standing there holding a bloody severed head talking to the king. And in that moment, Jonathan knew at the deepest, innermost part of himself, that David would be his closest friend for the rest of his life on earth. And of course, there were great similarities between them. They were close in age. Jonathan was just a few years older. Uh, they were both fearless, capable fighters. They had both taken on the Philistine enemies while the rest of the Israelite army cowered in fear. You'll remember back in chapter 14, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer attacked an entire Philistine garrison without any support from his father, the king, who was hiding in a cave with the rest of his army. Uh, and of course, Jonathan and David both loved and served God faithfully. So yes, uh, they had a lot in common. But look, in other ways, they couldn't be more different. Jonathan was the firstborn son of a king. David was the lastborn son of a farmer. Jonathan was the crown prince. David was a shepherd boy. Jonathan grew up in a place of privilege and honor. David grew up working in the fields, being looked down upon by his brothers. In many ways, these two young men were very, very different. And yet the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Okay, what was happening here was much deeper than these two having a lot in common. In fact, when it says that Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David, uh, it's the word knit, kashar, in the Hebrew, it means to bind together. This was a deep spiritual binding of two souls together, which is something that can only be done by the Spirit of God within us. <clears throat> Interestingly, the NIV translates that same phrase as Jonathan became one in spirit with David. So this was the Holy Spirit at work in a brand new friendship, which sounds exceptional, and indeed it is. And yet, listen, for Christians, this is the way it was meant to be. Notice the contrast between Saul and David's relationship and Jonathan and David's relationship. 
Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, which means David was forcibly conscripted into military service by Saul. In other words, Saul took David for himself, while Jonathan freely gave himself to David. And do you know what the difference was? The Spirit of God inside them. The Holy Spirit was with Jonathan and David. While back in chapter 16, we learned that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Okay, this kind of friendship is something supernatural, something only God can do as he knits our souls together by his spirit within us. And the result is a kind of relationship that is so deep, so special, so unbreakable that it changes your life and other people's lives forever. Which is exactly what we'll see as this story of Jonathan and David continues. The point being, as a follower of Christ today, just like these two men back then, you were meant to have deep relationships. You were meant to have deep relationships. And listen, when it comes to the family of God, when it comes to your life, that isn't supposed to be the exception. It's supposed to be the rule. Because just like Jonathan and David, we share the same spirit, the spirit of Christ. And by that same spirit, we've been called to the same mission to make disciples. We've been transformed by the same message, the good news of the gospel. And we're filled with the same blessed hope, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And so as Christ followers, what makes our relationships deep is not supposed to be determined by similarities or differences. This is why racism should never exist in the body of Christ. It's why economic status or upbringing or lifestyle or cultural preferences or any of the other indicators that, that the world uses to try and find the right match for your marriage or for your friendship should never determine the depth of our relationships in the body of Christ. I mean, that, that's all the world has to go on, right? But for those who are in Christ, we're all the right match. That's what the Apostle Paul said. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. Why is that the case for us? Because our relationships aren't based on any of the world's standards for compatibility. No, our relationships are based on something infinitely deeper. The spirit of Christ inside of us. And so in Christ, we are one. <laughs> Sorry, whether you like it or not, or want it to be that way or not, if you are in Christ, your life is inexorably bound to the rest of the body, spirit to spirit and soul to soul. You understand, uh, Jesus never had one shallow relationship in his life. Not one. Even Judas, he wouldn't have gone out and killed himself after betraying Jesus if his relationship with Jesus meant nothing to him. 
The truth is every relationship Jesus ever fostered with another human being was a deep relationship. You know why? Because anything less than that is a waste of time. Because there's no place in his kingdom for shallow relationships. Because shallow relationships don't build his kingdom or reflect his kingdom on earth. And of course, no one has the capacity, we all know, for an endless number of those kinds of relationships. Which is why, by the way, Jesus chose a relatively small number, 12 men and some other men and women who were with them, to forge deep relationships with. And then he taught them how to do the same so they could in turn forge deep relationships with others. There's a term for that. It's called making disciples. And it reflects his kingdom on this earth and it builds his kingdom on this earth. Okay, discipleship always takes place in the context of deep relationships, not shallow ones. How would we like it if Jesus decided to have a shallow relationship with us? I mean, what would be the point for you or for him? It's the same reason, by the way, that watching your church online, listen, which is certainly understandable at certain times and in certain circumstances like now, like the ones we've been experiencing. But listen, that should never become a new normal for any follower of Christ. If I've read one article, I've read two dozen articles about the new normal coming for the church where people are going to stay home forever and watch church online. That should never be a new normal for any follower of Christ. Because whether we like it or not, Every single one of us needs, we need deep relationships within the body of Christ. And that cannot happen through a computer screen. That'd be like Jesus giving us his word, but not his spirit. Right? Then all we'd have is information about him, but not a relationship with him. Okay, if all we ever do is watch church online, then all we're getting is information without the relationships that we're supposed to apply that information to. Yet, listen, it's even bigger than simply showing up and attending church because I'm sure most of you already know that you can attend a church every single time the doors are open and still not have deep relationships in your life. I've experienced that firsthand. But I hope you understand that's not God's will being expressed on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not his plan for your life. The fact is you were meant to have deep relationships with your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters in Christ. Which means first, of course, you have to physically show up in those people's lives. Right. And then you have to make the effort and pay the price, which we're going to talk about next, to make and maintain those deep relationships, the soul-to-soul kind of relationships that change you forever. Because you cannot reflect God's kingdom on earth by yourself. Jesus surrounded himself with people he fostered profoundly deep relationships with and then he taught them to do the same which is why from the inception of the church all the way through the new testament what you find is god's people carrying out their calling together right even the great apostle paul he was with other people every time he went out to minister because just like jesus he knew it was not something he could do alone 
Listen, if Paul couldn't carry out his calling alone and the other apostles couldn't carry out their calling alone and Jesus couldn't carry out his calling alone, I'm pretty sure that you cannot carry out your calling alone. So just take a look around and then ask yourself, do I have deep relationships with any of these people? Look, if the answer is no, then you need to start praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Because your life will never reflect the kingdom of God apart from deep relationships with the people of God. And as we'll see next, uh, that's going to cost you something. Let's keep reading verses 3 and 4. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Oh, this sounds like a really generous act by Jonathan to give David his robe and armor and sword and bow and belt. And, and uh, of course, it is generous, but it's a lot more than generosity. First of all, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. And in antiquity, a covenant was uh, far more than just an agreement between friends. It was an oath between two people or two entities that was binding at the highest level, socially, politically, and religiously. In fact, uh, in fact uh, much of what we know of the ancient world today comes from information that has been preserved in written covenants between nations from all over the ancient Near East. And more importantly, uh, it was a covenant between God and his people that constituted the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And likewise, of course, uh, a new covenant established by Jesus with God's people constitutes the kingdom of God today. And so this move by Jonathan to establish a covenant with David, that depth of relationship itself and all the implications that go along with that kind of commitment reflects the kingdom of God on earth. And so to signify his commitment to the covenant, Jonathan gives everything that he has to David. He takes off his royal robe, his royal armor, his sword, his bow, his belt, and he hands it all to David. Understand that this was Jonathan effectively abdicating his right to the throne as the firstborn son of the king. It's a term called primogeniture. It's where the firstborn son assumed the throne and a double portion of the family inheritance. And yet because of his love for David and the depth of their relationship, Jonathan gives David his birthright. All that he has. Not because he's being forced to, but because he wants to because of his deep love for David. And so this relationship between Jonathan and David was not only deep, it was costly. And look, when it comes to the people of God, that's how it was meant to be. You were meant to have costly relationships. Okay, the fact is, every relationship in your life worth having will cost you something. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? There isn't a parent on the planet who can honestly say that raising their children hasn't cost them something. Right next to Jesus, parenthood is the ultimate example of discipleship that we have on earth, which is also why it's so costly. And if you have kids in college, it's really costly. I have two there. Listen, 
the deeper you go into relationships with others, the more it's going to cost you. Why? Because in every deep relationship, there's a commitment to serve one another physically, emotionally, materially, spiritually. We serve one another in every area of our lives. And the deeper you go, the more it's going to cost you. The more you will give, the more you will give up, the more you will give away, the more you will go without for the sake of the other. Just look at what Jonathan gave. It was everything he had. He gave David his life. That relationship cost Jonathan everything, and it was a reflection of the kingdom of heaven on earth as Jesus came from heaven and gave everything he had for you and me because he decided his relationship with you was worth having. And so as a result, it cost him everything. The problem we have today is that we want our relationships to be conditional. I'll love you if you'll love me back. I'll serve you if you'll serve me back. I'll respect you if you'll respect me back. Listen, Jesus prayed for the people who killed him while they were killing him. The truth is, if you're not serving other people, you're not serving God. Whether they ever serve you back or not. There's no version of living for Christ that doesn't involve serving other people unconditionally. So don't think that, that you're somehow missing out on God's plan for your life if you're spending all your time and energy serving other people because that is God's plan for your life. Every single one of us is called to serve someone else. And when each part is working properly, as the Apostle Paul says, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4.16, which means if we're all doing our part, then we're all serving. And yes, we are also all being served by others in the body as well, which we're going to talk about next. But it's not conditional. In other words, yes, there should be those in the body who serve and support you, even as you serve and support others. But your service to those people should never be based on their service to you. It's not give and take. Jonathan wasn't asking for anything back from David. Although he ultimately received much from David, but Jonathan was prepared to give all that he had to David, whether he ever received anything in return or not. He didn't ask David what he would get for giving him all of his armor, his sword, his royal robe, his inheritance. He didn't ask. He just gave it to him. This is where most of us get hung up because we, we pour our lives into other people. And yet the reality of it is, as I'm sure you know, sometimes they don't reciprocate. Sometimes they don't love you back the same way you've loved them. Look, sometimes no matter how much you give, sometimes people walk away from the relationship anyway, and you're left wondering what happened. And listen, I know it is really easy if we're not careful. It's easy to say, uh-uh, never again. I will never let that happen to me again. And before you know it, all of your relationships are conditional, transactional. Because you're not willing to get hurt like that again. And here's the problem. Listen, this is the problem with living like that. Conditions kill the depth in a relationship every time. Every time. And as a result, conditional relationships 
They are always shallow relationships. Tell me, where would we be if Jesus had said, I will love you and live for you and die for you if, if you treat me like I deserve to be treated? If you love me the way that I love you, if you show me the respect and honor that I deserve, if you serve me the way that I've served you, if Jesus's commitment to us was conditional, we'd be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? The fact is, loving people is costly. It's supposed to be. Because when you love others that way, regardless of what you ever receive or don't receive back from them, your life becomes a reflection of the kingdom of God on this earth. And that is how it was meant to be. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. This was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. When it says that David went out and was successful, wherever Saul sent him, that phrase, and was successful, is the ancient Hebrew word sakal. It's theologically significant here because according to the Torah, the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 29.9 says that those who keep the words of the law, in other words, those who serve the command of God faithfully will prosper in all that you do. Deuteronomy 29.9, it's the same Hebrew word, sakal. It's not a coincidence that the author of this story in Samuel uses that same phrase to describe David's success. And of course, the Apostle Paul tells us, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. The, uh, the point being, God's desire for your life is not for you to forever pour into relationships without ever receiving any return on that investment. Yet there will be times when you serve others and love others and give yourself to others and they don't serve or love or give back to you. Of course, but listen, as you continue to serve and love and give faithfully, God will reward you in ways you've never imagined, mainly through relationships that will change your life and the lives of those you're faithfully serving. Okay, as, as David continued to serve God and Saul and the people of Israel faithfully, he prospered in all that he did and it affected everyone. Saul set David over the men of war and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David served faithfully even when no one was serving him back and the result was ultimately he was rewarded by Jonathan and by Saul and by the rest of the people of God, which is how it's supposed to work, okay? The fact is you were meant to have mutually beneficial relationships, symbiotic relationships if you want a big word to go with it. You were meant to have mutually beneficial relationships. Again, there may be seasons in your life uh, when you're pouring into people who are not pouring back into you, and that's okay. But it's not supposed to be that way forever. However, because God has called you to serve others, even when they don't serve you back, that means he's called someone else to serve you. And so listen, if there's ever anyone in the family of God who's not being cared for, 
then someone else is not doing their job. By the way, that's not just uh, directed at pastors. That's directed at all of us. The truth is, it's a gross distortion of the word of God to believe that it's primarily the job of professional pastors to care for the body of Christ. You know that in Acts 6, when some of the widows in the church were being neglected, it says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we, the pastors, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That sounds sort of arrogant, but it's not. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts 6, 2 through 4. The professional pastors said the body should be taking care of the body. Our primary responsibility as pastors is to pray and preach the word of God. I didn't say that. <laughs> they did. Don't get mad at me. The fact is, if you attend the church and receive from the teaching and benefit from the worship and enjoy the fellowship, but don't serve the body of Christ in any way, then listen, someone else isn't being cared for like they should be. Somebody's needs aren't being met. Someone who is starving for a mutually beneficial relationship is having to do without because you're not doing your part. And perhaps it's because you think that's something for the pastors to do. Or maybe you think you have nothing to offer, but I'm telling you neither one of those is true. Because every single member of the family of God is called and commanded and equipped by God to serve the people of God. And it may be as simple as simply being a friend to someone who's lonely or having coffee once in a while with one of our elderly members or single moms who don't have family close by. Or maybe it's serving at our Solutions Recovery Campus where we get the great privilege of ministering to men and women every week and throughout the week who've been broken by years of addiction and abuse. Maybe, maybe it's one of the nearly other 30 ministries in this church, ministries that touch nearly every area of people's lives from birth to death. Please don't fool yourself by thinking you have nothing to offer. Because the fact is you have yourself to offer, and that's exactly what someone else needs in their life, a relationship with you. Charles Spurgeon once said, one of the greatest rewards that we ever receive for serving God is the permission to do still more for him. Okay. When Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, pray. Pray that your life on this earth would look like my life on this earth. Pray. Pray that you will have the courage and strength and commitment to love God and to love others the way that I do. Pray. 
Pray that you will have deep relationships with the family of God that will change your life forever. Pray that you will have the privilege to give all that you have in service to others and pray that not one among you will ever have to go without the kind of sustaining relationships that every one of us needs. For this is the will of God for your life. And it is how you reflect my kingdom on this earth by laying your own life down for other people. Because when it comes to the people of God, that's how it was meant to be. Let's pray.